2012, and at 1.37 p.m., I turned 50 years old. And I haven't gotten over I am now at the stage of my life where I am managing risk. I spend most of my time meeting with lawyers, accountants, doctors, all trying to keep the things that I put together in order. I want to make sure I keep everything where it needs to be because I'm getting ready for, as a friend of mine once said, my final exam. I even went and decided to get these bracelets on my teeth. I am in the third year of a one-year program. <laughs> Most people, when they turn 50, they go out and get a Harley or something. I get bracelets. Don't worry, these are easy, it's a piece of cake. I can't even eat cake. <laughs> We try to get everything in its order, everything in its place. And I have been really trying that all of my life because somehow the sequence, the order of things matters. And it does. But sometimes we pay so much attention to that that we can miss the essence of some other things. I've been doing the same thing as I think about baptism, as I think about communion. I can't remember a time where there was a Sunday where I didn't have communion with some church somewhere. When I was a kid at the uh, East Bakersfield Church, I was uh, invited to wait on the Lord's table. What a special honor that was. The first time. And it so happened on that particular Sunday, there was a new Christian who had been invited to come to the table and to lead the church in the table. And so he picked up the tray of the juice first. And he began to pass it. And we began to hear mumbles through the crowd. And finally, the minister up front, lanky little, that was his name, stands up and he says, stop! Because we had just thrown the church into some kind of theological chaos. And so he, they collected all the trays and brought them back and we did it back in order. Bread first, then juice. Because that's important. I can't remember when I haven't had Lord's Supper, as I mentioned, with some church families throughout any given Sunday as I, as I look back on my life. And, and in fact, I can remember being in a large arena with 40,000 people. And we had communion and we served in little plastic, hermetically sealed cups with a little biscuit on top. That was strange, really. I remember being in a very small group, just about 20 of us in Lausanne, Switzerland. And when communion time came, they passed one cup around the room, and it had wine in it. I remember thinking to myself, I don't know which is worse, that it's one cup or one wine. <laughs> I've heard of these people before, but I've never met any. There they were, and here I was. So we've taken it many different ways, but I must say, the most unusual and memorable Lord's Supper I ever had was in this, actually not this building, it was in that building over there. On one particular Sunday, we had gathered, as we do every Sunday, and it was time for Lord's Supper, and I used to sit on the front row with Jeff, Jeff Walling, who was a here, many of you know him, and Jeff and I would be sitting together, and as the communion was passed, the trays were passed our way, and when the, when the juice came, Jeff and I, who were seated, and we'd kind of taken, you know, that contemplative pose, as you think about and 
set your mind on the Lord's Supper. And we picked up the cup and we took a big sip, threw our head back as everyone did, and instantly realized something was terribly wrong. Whatever was in this cup had gone bad. It was sour. And we winced and we went, ooh, and then we heard behind us, ooh, 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 ah, 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 all the way back in the auditorium. Many of you remember who was taking care of communion in those days, Alice Maynard, love Alice. Alice, what happened to the juice? It went bad. Well, Rick, I checked the date and the date's just fine. I said, when do you prepare it? She said, well, we prepare it on Wednesdays. Wednesdays? That seems a little early. Could you not do it on Saturdays? Oh, no, no, they've moved my hair appointment to Saturdays. I can't do it on Saturdays. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. So the next Sunday came. Communion was being passed. Jeff and I had taken our front seats and taken the contemplative pose. And as the juice was passed, we picked up the cup, hesitated a moment, thinking of the week before, sniffed a little, and then took our sip and realized that nothing was coming out of the juice. Because it was no longer juice, it was frozen. We were having communion popsicles that Sunday. <laughs> and instantly we heard the crowd behind us, ooh, ah, ee, ah, ah, all the way back. We've been trying to get it right. Everything in decency and order, in the right sequence. The same with baptism. As a young man, I got the responsibility of helping prepare the men who decided to be baptized at the church where I grew up. I would go, whenever somebody came forward to be baptized, I would stand up, walk with the preacher, I would help him get ready and the person get ready. And I remember my first Sunday, the deacon walked with me and gave me my assignment. The first thing you need to know, Rick, well, Ricky is what they call me. The first thing you need to know, Ricky, is that you have to help the minister get into his waiters. The next thing is you help uh, the, the person being baptized get into their gown. But then you need to take care of the window. What's the window? And he pointed me to a little window. I had to step on a stool to get to it. And it was kind of like one of those little speakeasy windows where you kind of slide it open. And you look through into the baptism and you realize that that had a very important function. First, it allowed you to open the curtains when they were in the baptistry. And when they were finished, you could close the curtains. But it had another function, didn't it? And that function was... Make sure that the whole person is under the water. No knees, no elbows, no toes. Make sure. You know, I don't want to make light of that too much because these people were operating out of a deep and abiding respect for communion, for baptism. They want to be pleasing to God. But in the attempt to get it all right and to put it in order, we were missing the essence of this amazing thing that God had done through these gifts to the church, through baptism and communion. This year at the Pepperdine Bible Lectures, we've decided to do something we've never done before. We have decided to, to not just take a single book of the Bible, but to take a subject. In fact, not just one, but two. Two subjects, baptism and communion. And what have these meant to our fellowship? What do they mean to the church? What has God done through them?
And we're going to take a very deep dive into the essence of communion, into the essence of baptism. I'm here today to do a couple things. I want to kind of give you a sense of what that's going to be about, but I've also come just to give you an invitation. I noticed, by the way, you had a sign up earlier that said to silence your cell phones. I'm going to give you permission to take out your mobile device and to download the app for the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. Download that app and register. This time last year we had 1,600 registered and 4,500 showed up at the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. As of Friday, we have 3,100 registered, and I don't know who's going to show up. All I know is we've not invited the fire marshal because we're expecting a very, very big, big crowd. People are excited about this. 17% of the people who've registered have never, ever been to Pepperdine. They've never been to the Bible Lectures, and oh, they're in for a treat. We are going to just dive deeply into this subject, and we're going to spend some time trying to understand what has God done through these gifts. Today what I'd like to do is give you just kind of a brief overview, and then we will end with uh, a, a, a few moments thinking about Jesus' own baptism. We will start, of course, in Acts 2. How could we not go to Acts chapter 2? Water and spirit deluged in the life of God. In this passage, we find that there are two major gifts given to the church, the gift of forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit. And in this community that has been formed, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have come together to form a divine community, a community that is devoted to one another, a community that worships together, prays together, shares in God's gifts together. This was a, an amazing community that had been put together, and so we are going to spend some time asking ourselves, if God put this community together, this fellowship together, what does it look like, and how do we act uh, toward one another? We're going to also spend time in Romans chapter 6, enlisting in um, the Jesus story. This is our personal story. This is the moment when you and I as baptized believers, we have shared in Christ's death. We are dead to sin, alive in Christ. We've been buried with Christ. We are dead to sin. We have moved from death to life. We have moved from flesh to spirit, from an earthly kingdom to a heavenly kingdom. When we signed up, we didn't just join a church and got to wear a pin and got our name in the bulletin or in the directory or our picture on the board. It's not like the Rotary Club where they give you a pen. You were welcomed into a divinely created community. And to do that, something in you had to die and something had to be replaced. You are, your own, you are the perfect example of a death and resurrection story. We will then turn to Galatians chapter 3 and we will ask ourselves the question around uh, now that we are a part of this community, what are our baptismal vows? What does it mean to be a member of this community? Not just with one another, but, but with, with God. Those who have been baptized, Galatians says, have been clothed in Christ. We have been set apart from a world or a hierarchy of privilege that we are so accustomed to in this world in this passage, we learn that Jesus flattens the org chart. There's Jesus and everyone else. This will be a challenge for the church, folks. This will be a great passage for us to spend time together because in this passage, 
the writer challenges and brings to attention three categories that were used to exclude people. Race, slavery, and gender. How does the church work together? How does the church come together as this new community that has been created where there is Jesus and everyone else? We are so accustomed to our own hierarchy, to our own rules, to our own org charts. And in fact, in a moment, we're going to spend some time thinking about the Pharisees that were around the story of Jesus' baptism, and they lived by that hierarchy. They found their identity in that hierarchy. We're going to have some challenging moments as we think together what that means. In John chapter 6, we will then turn to the table, to communion itself. In this great story, we have two, two passages, or two, two miracles take place. If you recall, the first miracle is uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000, those who have gathered there. They've come to, to, because they've heard of what Jesus can do. They've come because they've seen him, him perform miracles. They wanted to be around him. Jesus gathers this great crowd, and he says, how are we going to feed all these people? The Bible says he said that just to test them because he knew that he was going to perform a miracle and feed all of them. And when he did, he fed their, their tummies. They were full. They liked this guy. He must be the prophet. As the evening comes to, or the day comes to an end and evening emerges, Jesus then retires to go to the other side and his disciples get in the boat and they go across the way. And while they do, Jesus joins them by walking on the water and joins them on the boat to the other side. The crowd finds out where they are, and they follow some more, and they say, we want to be around Jesus. And why did they like him? He fed them. But Jesus said, why do you look for food that will spoil? Why do you, look, why do you labor for food that will just, you'll be hungry again? He said, I am the bread of life. Now, this was astonishing to people and, and, and angering to the Pharisees. They would say, how dare you make that claim? That's, that's who you are. Some of Jesus' own disciples were put off by this because it felt as though he was saying, we want you to, I want you to eat of my flesh. And some, some left him altogether. But Jesus was saying, you have to take me in. I am the bread of life. I am the, I am the bread that endures. I am the bread that fills. I am the bread that satisfies. The community gathers around the table, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the passage that was even read, read today, we see an example or a story that's really challenging to the church, even to this day. The believers would get together very often for a love feast prior to taking communion together. Some believe that the, the time in which it was uh, selected was convenient for those who might have had wealth or privilege, but those who were working, or may have even have been indentured slaves or servants, they found it difficult to come together, and when they did, they had no food themselves. They had, they had nothing they could eat. They were poor. They had nothing to bring. Yet there were others who had gathered for the feast in advance, and they were just eating and, and drinking. In fact, Paul says they were drinking so much they were getting drunk. And they were not paying attention at all to the needs of their brothers and sisters who had come with nothing. And then they all gather around the Lord's table to share in that. Paul says, not so fast. That doesn't work. That is, that is taking communion, what does he say, unworthily. How can you possibly gather around the Lord's table when you've disregarded the need of your brother? A really challenging passage, and we'll spend time there. And then finally, in Luke chapter 24, come to the feast. 
On the road to Emmaus, you may know this story, there are two travelers and they are, they are upset by what they've seen. They are confused by what has happened. Their life and their dreams have been turned over by the, the death of Jesus. They hear rumors about his resurrection. But as they're walking back, they are joined by a visitor who says, hey, what's going on? And they say, what do you mean what's going on? Where have you been? Not knowing that it was Jesus himself. He began to ask them questions. But then the visitors, as they were traveling, did a very important thing. They invited Jesus, or their guest at this point, that they did not know, and said, why don't you just join us? Don't go any further. Have a meal with us. Jesus accepted their invitation. And they sat at the table, and then he broke bread and gave thanks. And at a moment, they recognized who was in front of them. Jesus fed first their their tummies, and then their minds, and he then opened them up to what he was doing in this world. This is a great, uh, a great passage for us to consider on our final night, and I think we're going to have some very special moments on Friday night as we look at this passage, as we consider what the invitation to come to the feast has meant. But we're going to start the night on Tuesday, the week at Tuesday night in Matthew 3, and we'll spend a few moments here today in this great story. Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Let's read it together. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, and in him I am well pleased. In the twelve verses that precede this amazing hinge moment story, John, John the Baptist pleads, to his audience for repentance and renewal. This was not a baptism of conversion. It was a baptism of repentance and purification. This would not have been lost or unknown to the Jews at that time. They, they practiced purification rituals and immersion rituals, but John was giving it special meaning. It was as if John sensed that there was a moment in history a hinge moment that was coming. And he was calling people to, uh, to, to repentance. And he warns of judgment. And he gives his harshest warning to the Pharisees and Sadducees. In verse 11 he says, I baptize you with water and repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit, a redemptive baptism, and with fire, judgment. Matthew's version of this story seems to tell the Jewish leaders that they were nearing a decision moment of their own. All that they knew to be true, the hierarchy, the org chart that kept them in place, that gave them privilege, that gave them their own identity, was about to be upended. Something was about to change. John's job was to prepare the way. This baptism, as you have thought of it, is about to represent something else. Because the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he showed up. He walked down the path. There he was. 
Jesus walked towards John. And John knew that the heaven, kingdom of heaven was near. What I love about Jesus' baptism is that it's not a baptism of forgiveness, but one of total and complete submission. He has come to the Jordan not to receive forgiveness, but to receive his mission and his identity. You'll note that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all show up in this story. They're all present in this story, and they cre create a moment, I believe one of the hinge moments in history, where heaven meets earth in Jesus. On May 9th, I'm going to travel with a group of people that I have not met yet. They are some people who are interested in ancient Celtic Christian practices, and we're going to travel to Iona, Scotland for a pilgrimage together. In some of the reading that we've been doing as we've been thinking about some of these spiritual disciplines, one of the ideas that the ancient Celts had was this idea of thin places. A thin place was where God showed up. A thin place was where heaven meets earth. That's what this is. This is a moment where heaven met earth. And in this story, death is disrupted. Satan's plans are overthrown. God sets out to redeem his creation, overcome death, and to bring new life. In this story, Jesus claims his identity, accepts his mission. In Matthew 4, after this passage, if in chapter 3, God makes his unverified claim, this is my son, I love him, and I'm pleased with him. That claim is verified in chapter 4, where Jesus goes into the desert and is tempted, and emerges from the desert victorious over temptation. And Jesus at that moment verifies the claim that has been made, that he indeed is the Son of God. He accepts his mission. He accepts his identity. What's amazing to me about this story is that all three come together. It is a hinge moment. But the thing is, Every observation I've ma made about this story, Jesus' baptism, is an observation I could make about you and your own story and your own baptism. In that space, that's a moment where Father, Son, Holy Spirit come together. That's a place where heaven meets earth. That's a place where heaven met earth in you. That's a moment when you not only received your new identity, but your mission. It changed everything in you, did it not? And if it didn't, we have something to think about. This is not just a, a ritual. This is not just a moment. This is not just a way to earn the pen or the picture on the board or the name in the directory. This is the moment where you became a child of God. And through you, God created a divine community. I'd like to read a little story here from uh, the Bible Lecture uh, Program Guide. If you've not received this, I hope you have. But if you have not, um, you, can, you can view this online at our website. Uh, there's a great story that I'm going to share with you about a, a young man named Zach. And that story is, is online as well. I have to tell you, these young people at, at Pepperdine, like, like one by one, it's amazing to me 
how they're causing me to think differently about the kingdom of God. I've spent most of my life thinking about God's kingdom as kind of a fortress, a thing to defend. But these young people, they're not interested in that. They, they see the Christian story as still unfolding. And they believe they've been invited into it. They want to be a part of that quest. They want to be a part of that adventure. They have no, they have no desire whatsoever to be a part of a fortress that just sits and waits. They see a very active God. And they feel that they have been, they dare to believe they've been invited to join that journey. But that's the way young people think. I can tell you, I visit a lot of churches these days. And there are, there are two kinds of churches. Actually, there are many kinds of churches, but there are two kinds of churches. Those that are fortresses, and they're waiting, and they're not growing. Or those that have joined God in some kind of journey. Because they believe he's still at work. And they want to be part of that. Well, here's such a young man. His name's Zach. And I'll end with this today. On September 23rd, 2012, Pepperdine first year undergrad, Zach Wilson braced himself as he entered the surf near Zuma Beach. Lifeguard Tower number four. University Church has baptisms regularly at Zuma Beach. Lifeguard Tower number four. The tide was high and the water that swirled about him was ice cold. Hundreds stood by and watched as the salty seawater swallowed him up. It was the last time they would see the Zach Wilson they had once known. Zach had gone to the water's edge that early Sunday morning to die, to put to death the young man who had only known how to live for himself. I interviewed Zach for the story. He said, I had thought knowledge about Jesus, but I did not have heart knowledge. Earlier that semester, Zach and 12 other students took a first-year seminar class on spiritual formation taught by the preaching minister of the University Church of Christ, Rich Little. Not the, not the comedian, the preacher. Rich began to show us who Jesus was. He showed us that Jesus was real and was relevant to every aspect of our lives. Having grown up in a Christian home in Scottsdale, Arizona, he attended the Scottsdale Bible Church. Zach knew the books of the Bible. The great Old Testament heroes, the Count of Mary and Joseph. But they were stories to him, just stories. No, no more or no less real than Abraham Lincoln, Mark Twain, Tom Sawyer, or Babe Ruth. I had no need to believe them in my heart, Zach says. During each class session, Rich taught his students to consider fresh ways to live intentionally for Jesus Christ. During his sermons on Sunday, Rich began to teach about baptism and the importance of publicly declaring your faith as a disciple. And for the first time, Zach was listening with his heart and not just his head. As the Jesus of the Bible story became the living word of God, Zach knew something must change. He knew that to live as a disciple, the young man had once, that he had once been must change be eliminated, must be put to death. So on that fall Sunday with his family there and about 200 members of the University Church of Christ standing on the shoreline, Zach entered the waters off Pacific Coast Highway and he gave his life to Christ. Zach says the ocean is an amazing place to be baptized. The surf is like the power of God. I felt like I was bathed in living, swirling water, living, swirling water of God. Today, Zach is now a sophomore. He says that he's been completely transformed and that his thoughts are fixed on God. He is active in Bible studies on campus and he shares his faith with anyone who will listen. 
He left the Zach he once was in the shores of Zuma Beach and emerged from the waters as a young man with a new identity. Zach says, for the first time, I know who I am. I'm done. That's it. That is what God has done in you. Jesus' story is your story. Jesus, I'm beginning to believe, has always been modeling what life with God is. And Jesus has created an invitation to be a part of that story. You remember your baptism? I do. I must say, I don't have the deepest thoughts. I don't, don't think I had all that wired, certainly at the time. But as my life with Christ has continued, I have, I have started to think more deeply about what God has done in me. What about you? It was a moment where heaven met earth in you. That's something to celebrate. We're going we're gonna to be doing that together in a couple of weeks. And I hope that you'll be a part of that. And you'll join in to something that has been so special to the churches of Christ all these years. Let's uncover its deepest meaning together. Let's gather around the table together. I hope that you'll consider that. I realize there are some in this audience today who may say, you know, I don't know what he's talking about. Church is a thing you go to. Church takes place on a time, at a time, on a certain time, time, uh, day of the week. It's much more than that. God has formed a divine community around his son, and he's invited you to be a part of that. So whether you're thinking about your own baptism, or you're wondering about the one, the, the, the entryway into to your relationship with God, this is a moment of decision. This is a moment of reflection about what's deeply important about what God has done in the kingdom of heaven around you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for today, and I thank you for this church, for these wonderful people that have meant so much to me. I thank you for what you have done and you continue to do through them in this community. Lord, like all these students, I, I believe you are still at work. You are drawing all people to your son, and you're inviting us to be a part of that mission. Lord, help us today own our identity in Jesus. Understand our full identity in Christ and to fully embrace and accept our mission and to fully participate in a divine community that you have created. Lord, that is an amazing gift. That is heaven meeting earth in us. And for that, we're very grateful. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And I pray in his name. Amen.